0: We've got you trained so well. Um, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 50, whether that's in your Bible on page what? Somebody 565, 559, bingo, good, 559, Psalm 50, you can turn that in your Bible if you have that as well. Uh, I'll be reading out of the ESV, and I'd invite you to stand with me as I read God's Word for us this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come this morning to you and find you here in your Word, where you come to us. We ask that you would open our hearts and open our eyes that we might see you and hear you and experience you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter 50, God himself is judge, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you, I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to receive my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is God's inspired word. Please be seated. So I have a a personal confession to make, if that's okay with you guys. Um, I recently discovered that I am not really the very best judge of how to spend my free time. Um, Well, I've actually known this for a long time. This is why I don't really play video games anymore. Um, But a few weeks ago, we were on a family vacation in South Carolina at the beach. And this is sort of when this really came into focus for me. You know, since, since we live 700 miles away from all of my family, it's always a special treat to go and and to visit with family, and to see people you don't see very often. Um, And so two weeks ago, while you were here worshiping, we were on the beach. Uh, We were not at church. Uh, We were looking, I was looking particularly for shark's teeth in the sand. Now, Folly Beach, South Carolina, um, if you want to find shark's teeth, is an excellent place to go and find them, one of the probably the best places in the world as evidenced by the sheer number of people that are just walking back and forth on the beach like this with their heads down. So much so that my cousin who joined us, she took a look at the site and said, this just looks like one of those zombie films you see where everybody (laughs) is staring. Don't they know that they're at the beach? And at the end of the week, as we were packing up and getting ready to come home, those Comments kind of boomerang back and, and, and sort of hit me in the face a little bit. Um, you know, we had traveled, as I thought about it, hundreds of miles to be with family in one of the most beautiful and historic cities in America, Charleston, South Carolina, where they have some of the best restaurants, where we're steps away from the beach, there's the sun, there's the everything that you could possibly want to do. And all I wanted to do was walk around with my head in the dirt. And what do I have to show for my week at the beach? Well, I have this jar of hundreds of shark's teeth worth, get this, literally tens of dollars. Now, if you would like one of these after worship, uh, come and and ask me, and I'll, I'll pick out one of the ones I don't want, and I'll give it to you. But do you know what this cost me? A, a hunched back, a sunburnt neck, and conservatively about 20 hours of beach time was put into this little jar. Now, I know some of you have access to beach homes or maybe weeks at the beach. A show of hands, how many of you would trade me a week at the beach for this jar right here? Well, if you, if you think about it, you want to talk to me later after church, come and find me and we can make a deal, right? I might even give you more than one tooth for that. So surrounded by the beauty of family and God's creation, I was content to stare at the ground. All I had to do was look up, and there's the ocean. There's my children beckoning me to come and to play with them in the water and get tossed about by the waves. But all I wanted was more and more of this. See, It's possible to be at the beach without being at the beach. It's possible, You, many of you with kids know this, to be on vacation without being on vacation. And it's possible to miss out on God all the while thinking that we are doing exactly what he wants us to do. And that's really the story of Psalm 50. Our, our psalm this morning is a psalm of Asaph, and he's noted as the author in 12 different psalms. So here in, verse, in Psalm 50 is the first one. And then in Psalms 73 through 83, we find they are also attributed to Asaph. Now Asaph is, is not David, obviously. Um, but we know from scripture that he was a prophet, a worship leader, a, a head singer, a chief musician amongst the people of God. And, and, and subsequent worshipers, singers, were either the actual sons of Asaph or just given that name out of respect to him. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 7. So just like the Psalms of David, Asaph's Psalms were written as songs to be sung by the people of God in worship. 116 out of 150 of the Psalms that we have, have some sort of title like ours does this morning, which you know, may not have come exactly from the author, but as the, as the editors were putting these things together very meticulously to put the right songs and the psalms in the right order Um, these titles have been with us since that early time and and psalm 50 is entitled what god himself is judge now now possibly just hearing the title of our psalm might have sparked one of two things in you you know typically we have one of two responses when we think about the judgment of god The first one is that some of us start shifting a little bit uncomfortably in our seats. You know, we're kind of thinking, "Uh uh-oh, here he goes again, right? Like, I've heard this before. I'm not sure I can stand another verbal lashing from the pulpit. Maybe not from this pulpit, but maybe you've been somewhere else or you've heard people that just seem to really enjoy ripping into people with the judgment of God. I've I've heard the tales. I've seen the scars of, of people who have some suffered trauma from from fire and brimstone type of messages where preachers just constantly tell people that they need to be questioning their own salvation and and that they're going to hell in a handbasket and quite frankly I'm not really sure where that saying comes from because handbaskets seem kind of nice in hell but anyways and so after repeatedly hearing that the sky is falling and judgment is coming some people begin to doubt that there is any type of judgment to fear at all. So we'll call this first reaction the uncomfortably skeptical response. Now, the the second reaction, I think, is maybe a little bit more common within places like this, is is that the concept of divine judgment is something that we maybe start getting strangely excited about. Uh, Kind of like um, you start to take pleasure in thinking about and identifying the sins of the people around you this is this is like your child who loves to tattle on their siblings nobody anybody have those where they get very excited thinking about the impending judgment that mom or dad may impose upon their siblings while they're sitting back like this with a smile on their face and perhaps you've noticed like I have that the sins we tend to highlight and fixate on are typically not ones that we personally struggle with ourselves while the ones we're more familiar with we tend to more easily excuse or cover up is not really a big deal so we have these uncomfortably skeptical response and then we also have this overly eager response to God's judgment and and Psalm 50 really stands as a corrective I think for each of those should the idea of the impending divine judgment make us uncomfortable I, I think it should right absolutely But does that mean that we live as if there's no judgment at all? Well, Scripture is pretty clear that we will all be judged. Should we eagerly look forward to watching the wicked, sinful world get what it deserves and pay for its sins? Well, no, absolutely not. And that's what Psalm 50 tells us. So the opening lines of our psalm take us back to the opening of the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. See, in in, In Exodus 20, God begins, before we see the first of the Ten Commandments, with this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he goes on to say, you shall know other gods before me. Psalm 50 opens up this way. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Now, you may remember that God has many different names throughout Scripture, and particularly in the Hebrew language, we find different words for God. And the one we find both here and also in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 is that English, the, the way we do it in English, is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord, all caps. And what does that signify? That's the Hebrew name Yahweh. Yahweh. This is the name that God gives to himself as he encounters Moses at the burning bush. And it's not so much a name, you might remember, as it is a state of being. We translate it, I am that I am, the self existent one. He is the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. And he is also God. Exodus 20 says that he's the one who rescued them from slavery in egypt and here in, in, in psalm 50 he is the mighty one as if there is no other mighty one the mighty god the god the lord he is all-powerful he is self-existent he is the creator of the universe he is the keeper of his people and now we find in psalm 50 that the lawgiver is issuing a summons calling all of creation everybody everywhere to come and appear before the throne and out of Zion, the perfect, holy dwelling place of God shines the perfection of beauty. Now this isn't beauty in the way that your children might think of it, that the pink, fluffy unicorns dancing on rainbows. Okay, this isn't that type of beauty, nor is it the beauty of the happy little tree of the Bob Ross painting. right This is the beauty of the Almighty, eternal God, who doesn't wait for us to approach him, but who, in fact, comes. To us, And he's preceded by a devouring fire, which kind of harkens us back to that burning bush. Or maybe also to Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel as he calls down the fire of God. Surrounded by a powerful whirlwind, think of the storms that, that rise up across the seas in the book of Jonah or perhaps even Jesus with his disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. See, he is marvelous, and he is terrifying. He is majestic, and he is radiant. He is glorious, but he is also awe-inducing and jaw-dropping. There is no one and nothing like this God. He's the perfection of beauty, and yet he is coming to judge. And surprisingly, his judgment starts with who? The faithful ones, the children of the covenant. A covenant, if you're not familiar, is a a promise that's agreed between two parties where where one promises to do this, and if you do this, then I will do this. In the Bible, we see covenants all throughout the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis chapter 3, God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve that if you obey, I will bless you, and if you don't, then I will curse you. A little bit later on, God makes a covenant with Noah after he destroyed the world with the flood. He says, I promise I'm not going to do that again. He puts the rainbow in the sky. A little bit after that, we see God coming to Moses after he releases his people from slavery in Egypt, and he makes this covenant where he codifies the law. Sorry, I forgot Abraham as well, but, you know, he's in there too, okay? God makes a covenant with Abraham. What's his covenant? I will make you into a great nation. I will give you a land and a people, and all nations of the world will be blessed through you. And then this covenant of Moses where God puts the law into writing and gives it to his people, and and covenants were ratified through the shedding of blood. A sacrifice was required to keep the covenant. So it's a little bit more than surprising when God declares that his judgment is going to start here with these people who he has made a covenant with and who have been making the sacrifices that God has been asking them to make. See, shouldn't the pagans and the heathens be the first ones to experience the wrath of God? There were plenty of terrible people at that time. You know, think of the Egyptians and the Philistines and the Assyrians, and we can go on and on and on. There's a, a great list of people who were just ripe for the judgment of God, who had persecuted and devoured his family. And yet God comes back to his kids. 1 Peter chapter 4, we just read in our unison reading, but a little bit later on it says, For it is time, verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, then what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, when the judgment of God comes, it starts in God's own house. That's not as if to say that God's judgment won't extend beyond his walls. It absolutely will, but that God is our father and a father's primary responsibility and primary concern is for his what? For his children. You know, as a parent, my harshest words are aimed at my own kids. You know, I I don't wander around Walmart looking for the worst behaved children I can find, and there are many of them, and and go and try to correct all of them. And why is that? There's somebody else's problem. They're not mine. I, I really don't even care, although I have a little bit more responsibility when it comes to the friends of my children. But my children? You know, we're, if we're at a Rosie's and they're misbehaving, they might get a harsh word. Why is that? Well, one, it, it reflects a little bit poorly on me. But two, it's my responsibility to, to do what? To help them to understand what is the best way to live. To know that there are certain things that we can do and certain things we can't do in this family. And I don't correct them just because I don't want them to make me look bad, usually. But I correct them because I love them. Because I actually care about them. I want the very best things for them. And so sometimes I say some difficult things to my children. And guess what? So it is with God. He cares for his people. And God's harshest words have always, always been for those who claim To be his. When judgment comes it starts at home. and It it must have been shocking for those who read this psalm. You see they thought they were doing everything that God had wanted from them. They were making regular sacrifices. They were doing the burnt offerings. They had all the external trappings of religion down. And so they were sure that God's judgment was for the people out there. And not for the people in here. And in doing so, they were revealing how much like little immature children they really were. See, isn't that the argument of a child? That was my argument as a child. Hey mom, if you think I'm bad, just look at what my friends are doing. You'll see, you'll see where I'm, I'm really not as bad as you think. Right, so what does spiritual immaturity look like? It looks like pointing the finger out at the world. You know, reading the Bible with one hand in the newspaper, or even worse, the Twitter news feed in my other hand, and and thinking and hoping that God's sure judgment is about to come upon those who are breaking God's law, all the while thinking that, that what God wants from me is my two to three hours on a Sunday morning. See, a sure sign of spiritual immaturity is reading God's word and not applying it to our own selves, but applying it to others. If only this person could hear this sermon right now. If only this person could read this passage that I just read, right? And when I, when I do that, I actually am using other people as a human shield to guard my own heart from allowing the word to penetrate me. It's that, that concept that Randy shared a few weeks ago about putting on your own mask first, right? How does God's word apply here? See, so spiritual maturity is the opposite. A sign of spiritual maturity is developing a greater sensitivity to sin, but not to the sins out there, it's to the sins in here. In Isaiah chapter 6, we find Isaiah, God's prophet, transported to the throne room of God. And, and like here in, Isaiah, in, in Psalm 50, Isaiah cannot help but be overwhelmed by the beauty and majesty and splendor and awesomeness of 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 the lord and he cries out, woe is me i'm lost and and woe is me means hey kill me now right this is too good for me i am not good enough to be here he says i'm a man of unclean lips see how quickly he recognizes who he is and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips this is god's family not the world he's talking about right "I, i i've got unclean lips and my people have unclean lips and i have seen the king therefore i should die And what happens to Isaiah? Well, after he acknowledges his own sin and guilt, along with that of his own people, it's God who comes and takes away those things from him. It's God who grabs, who commands that a coal be taken from the fire, the altar, and placed on his lips and purifies him. It's God who atones for his sin. It's God who removes his guilt. What does Isaiah bring to God? His uncleanness. He confesses who he is, which, spoiler alert, God already knew. And what does God do for him? Well, God forgives and God purifies. And we have this tendency to think that God is just like us. That all God cares about is what things look like on the outside. In commenting on this psalm, John Calvin wrote, Men are naturally disposed to outward show in religion and measuring God by themselves, imagining that an attention to ceremonies constitutes the sum of their duties. Basically this, we think that God is just like we are, that all he cares about is what he can see on the outside. And yet, what does God really want for us? See, what do I want from people? I just want people to do exactly what I want them to do all the time. Anybody else like that? If everybody just did their dang job, right, anybody? and they just behaved and listened to everything I said, then this world would be a whole heck of a lot better of a place. Sorry if that crossed the line for anybody. And it's not as if God doesn't care about our external obedience. Of course, he does. But that type of God is a God formed in my image. I don't really care how you're feeling. I just want you to do what I want you to do and then just be done with it. Does God need us to bring him our bulls and our goats? Well, I don't think many of us have bulls and goats in here. A few of you do. Does he want that from you? No. Why? Because he owns them all. The cattle on a thousand hills, they belong to him. The beasts in the forest, they belong to him. The birds in the air, they already belong to him. All the gold in all the world, guess whose that is? It belongs to him already. Do you think really that you can bring God something that he does not already have? See, the people of God were doing their sacrifices. That wasn't his complaint against them. He said, basically, you're already doing the bare minimum, and that's fine. But I desire more. And what is it that he wants? He said, there is no thanksgiving in your sacrifice. So there was no rejoicing in who God was. The people of God were treating God as if he was just another one of those conquering kings who came in and was sort of this tyrannical dictator, this heartless, cruel master, as if he just gave us the rules. And as long as we followed his rules, then he's going to be happy with us. That's how they were treating God. But God is not a heartless tyrant. God was not a callous dictator. God was what? Their father who desperately loves his people and longs to be in relationship with them. See, God won't correct us for our outward religious observance. You know, we should do these things, but, but that outward service is not all that God requires of us. It doesn't get at the heart of what God wants from us, and yet we're so often tempted to point to our church attendance or point to the fact that we go to a Bible study or something else as if this, I'm doing everything God wants me to do. What could possibly he want more from me than what I'm already doing? Does God care that you're in corporate worship? Absolutely, he does. But God wants more for you than that. God wants your heart. We can be physically here without being here, just like we can be at the beach without being at the beach. You can be on vacation without being on vacation. You can know a whole heck of a lot about God without actually knowing God. So what does he want from us? Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness. That word kindness is hesed, so steadfast love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. See, God doesn't want our work. He doesn't need our effort. He doesn't need our help. He wants our hearts. I hope you're hearing that. God wants your heart. He wants your affection. God wants you, all of you. He wants to shower us with kindness. He wants us to walk with him in humility. He wants to know us because to know him is to love him. And to love him is to be loved by him. This is the relationship that God is calling his people into. Not rote religion, but a religion that excites and enlivens the heart and invites us into life as we can only experience it with him. So the Lord disciplines and judges the ones he loves because he loves them. So the wages of sin is death. And, and death is what sin is working towards. But, but God's discipline is never punitive, right? He doesn't harm his children out of vindictiveness or pettiness the way we might be tempted to at times with our own kids. God's discipline is always for the sake of correction and restoration. It's always for the good of his covenant children. So hear that again. God's discipline is always for good. Of course, as we read in Hebrews 12, for the moment, or in the moment, all discipline seems unpleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, God's judgment is perfect. He doesn't make erroneous assumptions. He doesn't make false accusations. He knows our hearts, and the reality is that he knows us better than we know ourselves. See, God desires doing and pursuing justice or what is right, not just what is right by me. God desires us loving mercy and kindness, not looking forward to the destruction of our enemy, but actually rejoicing when people repent and turn to him. God desires us to walk with him in humility. And where do we find these things perfectly? Well, hopefully you figured out by now we find them in Jesus. Following in his footsteps, Jesus said that true worshipers of God worship him, what? In spirit and in truth. See, at the cross, Jesus poured out his spirit for us that we might have his spirit in us. And at the cross, Jesus revealed the truth that God is the judge, that the penalty of sin is surely death, but that your death and my death has been paid by the one who should have known no death. And that his death had paid the ransom for all who would know and trust and love him who are known and loved by him. And Psalm 50 closes, and we can't get to everything today. Psalm 50 closes with this line, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Let us give thanks for his salvation. And where do we find the salvation of God? Where do we find the way of salvation? We find it there at the cross. The one who endured for us so that we might endure with him forever. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good, you are righteous, you are beautiful and also terrifying, if we're honest. Lord, you know us, you know our hearts, you know the condition that we are in right now. And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, that because of his work, we don't get what we deserve. And because of his work, we get what we could never earn. Lord, we thank you that you have offered salvation through Christ Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us sensitive to ourselves, Lord, sensitive to the needs of those around us, Lord, that we might be a people who rejoice and give thanks for all that you have done and invite the world to join in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us all stand together.